0: Mark chapter 8, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. As you're turning to Mark 8, I want to confess something to you about this week. It's been a long time since I have been so burdened to pray for our church as we reflect on a passage of scripture. And the reason is that this passage outlines the nature and definition of true Christianity. It opens up the cost of discipleship. It is, in a very real sense, a call for any preacher who approaches this text to evangelize his own church. For us to make sure that we understand what Christianity really is, not just in name only, but also. In submission to the Lord. Mark chapter 8, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 34. Mark 8, 34. You'll remember that Jesus is walking some 20 miles from the Bethsaida Capernaum area, north shore of the Lake of Galilee, and he's walking up toward the district of Caesarea Philippi. He summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's Will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. One of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the entire Bible is found at the launching point of the Ten Commandments. It's actually the third commandment. And I'll confess, growing up, thinking that I understood what the third commandment really meant, but it wasn't until I drilled down and studied the actual meaning of the words and the context that I was completely reoriented to this passage. Let me read that for you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 says this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now I grew up hearing that that was about cussing and cursing and saying bad words. Sometimes even using God's name with a derivative judgment associated with it. And that that's what that verse was addressing. You may find it interesting to know that those little expressions of speech were not extant. They weren't happening during the day of Moses. Moses. And though that's an application to obviously not say things that that abuse the name of the Lord, that's an application that's way down the line from this passage. It's not what it's talking about. And it all comes from understanding the word take. It's the Hebrew word nasah. Let me reread that for you and translate it according to my halot, the Hebrew and Aramaic dictionary, my lexicon. You shall not carry or wear or hold up on a banner the name of the Lord, your God, in a vain way. This verse is not about cussing and swearing. This verse is about saying that you belong to the Lord, carrying his name in who you identify yourself with, but doing so in a vain way. The third commandment is about saying that you belong to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not acting like it. There's an obvious expectation for the Jewish believers in their relationship with the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God that they were to act like they belonged to the one they had promised their lives to and the one who had experienced His own covenant and promise to them and with them. Their values were to be divinely ordered. Their behavior was to be regulated by the law of Moses, the law of God. Their lives were to be distinguished from the pagan cultures and people around them. They were to live distinct lives, different lives. They were to wear and carry the name of God. They were to say they belonged to God by the way they lived. That's the command in the third commandment. Do not carry the name of the Lord in vain. Don't say you're a true Israelite and not act like it. In short, God says in this commandment that if you're going to bear his name, claim a relationship with him, you must do so in a way that reflects his holiness and defined divine expectations. As we come to this passage in Mark, we come to what really could only be termed the New Testament equivalent of the third commandment. You should not bear the name of the God of Israel in a vain way. It was spoken in the third commandment. And here, you shall not live and say you belong to Jesus Christ and you believe the gospel and live in a vain way As well. It's the exact same principle. More than any other time and place in history, so called American evangelicalism or or American Christianity, if you want to broaden it out even further, I think is suffering from a severe and sometimes unrecognized identity crisis. The most simple and basic question is this How do you define the identity of a true believer? What's a Christian? Who is a Christian? Oh, I've read Gallup polls. I know that they change from month to month and year to year. I don't think that's a clear reflection of what Jesus is asking here. Who is a genuine believer? And are you able to identify the marks of someone who is claiming Christ in name only, but has no living and effective relationship with him in their experience? How do you define a Christian? How do you identify a true Christian? Now, this question, by the way, presupposes that we are to be aware of and be able to identify false believers who claim to be Christians but are not. Now, is this a true assessment? Is this a fair assessment? Listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21. He says, not Everyone who says to me, not just claiming to anybody, these people are deceived in their relationship and looking toward heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's quite a statement. Not everyone, this is Jesus' words. Not everyone who says to him, You are my Lord, you are the Lord, not all of those people will go to heaven. He goes on, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter into heaven. If that's not enough, he fasts forward to the great judgment. In fact, this is not the judgment for believers. This is the great white throne judgment of Revelation 19 and 20. Not some, not a few, But he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they say it twice. Did we not prophesy or teach in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus says, I then will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice Lawlessness. Jesus sends people with a false profession, standing at the portals of heaven, expecting to walk into heaven, and he sends them to hell from there. Does that not alert your attention? Paul said, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. John wrote in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us. They were a part of the church. But they were not really of us. Paul informed the Galatians in Galatians 6 verse 2. In Galatians 2 verse 4 rather. It was because of the false brethren secretly brought in. He recognizes that there are some who look like brothers. Who look like Christians. Who claim to be Christ's but they're not real, they're false. Turn on the Trinity Broadcasting Network and you will see and hear preacher after preacher preaching a message that, was given, that has given false hope, false assurance, false expectations, and generates false disciples. Why? The answer is in our text this morning. I remember the first time that I came into contact with this text. It's actually the same um, uh, teaching in Matthew chapter 16. And I read it, and I remember reading it again, and I remember reading it a third and a fourth time in my old blue, tattered, wiry study Bible, and pushing back from the table, thinking, How can this be so? What does Jesus expect? You will not hear the words here in Mark chapter 8 spoken on most shows on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Prosperity Gospels don't teach this. The message of health and wealth is not in the passage before us. All upside in their message. Here's what God can do for you. Here's what God can give you. Here's what God will do for you. It's kind of like a genie. And if you rub the magic lamp the right way, he shows up and he gives you what you want and as many requests as you will make as long as you have enough faith, which puts, puts the impotence back on, on the believing person. But here on this 20 mile journey on the way up to Caesarea Philippi from the north shore of, of Galilee, Jesus lays the foundation for these men and the followers who are walking with him of what it means, what it truly means, what it's defined by when you look at the identity of a true Christian, a true disciple. The Greek word for disciple uh, is the word learner. It's someone who learns. It's a pupil. It occurs about 40 times in Mark's gospel. Understanding discipleship is actually one of Mark's true, two primary themes in the whole book. If you were to get the highest altitude and look at the gospel of Mark, he is ultimately all of the stories, all of the teaching, all of these paragraphs and pericopes, everything lines up under one of two main categories. First of all, who is Jesus and what has God done through him? This is the identity of Christ. This is who the Messiah is. This is the one who can save the son of man, the son of God. This is the one who offers salvation. The second theme is what it means to respond to the good news, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to become a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus. So the identity of Christ and the identity of a true disciple, those are the two main themes that stitch the whole book together passage before us is talking about the latter, what it means to be a true disciple. Now, remember, we looked last week at this great passage where on the way walking up, um, Jesus asks the rumor mill, who, who do people say I am? They've been out in the, the villages. They've been out uh, amongst the people. And Jesus says, so what's the rumor mill? Who do people say I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist reincarnate. That was Herod's big fear. Some say you're, you're um, uh, Elijah. Some say you're just the latest in the Old Testament prophets. And he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter wonderfully, and as Matthew says, according to the word of God in him, says, you are the Christ. Matthew adds, the son of the living God. It's no mistake that in Matthew's account of this story and in Luke's account of this story and in Mark's account of this story, what Jesus said exactly and immediately follows that great proclamation. Let's break it down and discover together five deliberations about the cost of discipleship. Deliberations. What's deliberate? How do we think about these? What, what what do we take away from this explanation of what discipleship, what following Jesus really costs? Five deliberations about the cost of discipleship. The first is verse 34: the cost defined. The cost defined. Now Let me give you a little head start so no one panics in just a few minutes. This is the longest and most intense of the four points. The five points, rather. The other four are all subordinate phrases that really explain it. We're gonna be able to fly through those, but the first point is the most intense. It's got the most teeth, everything else flows out of it, so we're gonna spend the most time here. Don't panic if it looks like we're parking here for a few minutes. I don't think the pot roast will burn today. The cost defined. Verse 34, and he summoned the crowd, stop right there with his disciples. He's been talking to the the disciples. Peter has taken him aside, remember that? And uh, he turned back to the disciples and exposed Peter for being uh, uh, reliant on his earthly values and being used as a satanic ploy and plot to discourage Jesus from marching toward the cross actually he didn't know that yet marching toward his death they continue along and there's obviously a big crowd with them he brings the whole crowd around Whether he's on the way up the road or whether he's on the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi, neither of the three synoptic gospels tell us, but it was a part of this journey. So he brings everyone together with his disciples and he says to this crowd, these are people who have started to follow him around. Imagine being so interested in someone, you would walk 20 miles behind them to see what they're going to do and what they're going to say. I think we missed the fact that this is a big deal. They just walk north with Jesus, where are you going? Uh, We don't know, where's he gonna end? We don't know, where are we gonna stay? We don't know, what are we gonna eat? I've seen him do that before. (laughs) He gets the whole crowd and he said to them, ah, circle this next word in your Bible when you see it, a conditional clause, if. If, if, if. If anyone wishes to come, to follow me, to come after me, he must, here's the three parts. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Three distinct parts of Jesus' definition and conditional qualification for being one of his disciples. Self-denial, cross-bearing, and loyal. Following. Let's break those down. First of all, self-denial. If anyone wishes to come after me, that's, that's just a, a way to say, if anyone wants to follow me, if you want to stay as my disciple, if you want to uh, continue on from just following me around to genuinely being a, a follower of mine, if anyone wishes to do that, first he must exercise self-denial. This is, if you want to take notes, this is letter A under number, number one. Self-denial. David Garland says this. It is not denying something to oneself. So denying yourself like I'm not going to have ice cream or dessert tonight. It is not denying something to oneself but denying the self. Those who deny themselves have learned to say not my will but thine be done. End quote. Being a Christian involves a lifelong battle against think about this if you're truly saved, if you've truly been converted, you have entered into a lifelong battle against self-absorption ah, we love ourselves, just absorbed with ourselves, where am I going to sit where am I going to park, what am I going to do what am I going, everything is how does my life advance better absorbed with self. We don't even see it. I'm studying this and yesterday my son Mark and I were, were driving over to a coffee shop to spend some time together and do some study and I looked at a parking space with another one wanting to, person wanting to park in the parking space. Now forgive me if, if this is, just work with me here. And I thought I'm going to beat them because I want the better parking spot. Which, there's no sin in and of itself. Maybe it's good stewardship of your legs. You only have so many steps you can take in your life. <laughs> but after studying this passage all week, I felt in my heart saying, why me over them? Now, don't have a crisis in parking lots. Mission Road Bible Church is gonna walk around, drive around in parking lots just frozen up. I don't know where to park. no it just revealed in my own heart how intuitively selfish I am. If that wasn't enough, we went in the coffee shop and there was a table we wanted in a private little room that was wide open. And I asked the barista if we could go in there and study. And she said, sure, right? She said, sure. So we go in there and the other barista, am I saying that right? Came in and said, oh no, no, that's already been reserved. You know what my thought was? But I'm here and they're not. Mine, me, seat. This is self-counseling. It's a lifelong battle against self-absorption, self-admiration. Do I even need to address mirrors Self-pity, self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-seeking, self-assertion, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-love, which all amounts to our natural-born selfishness. So when Jesus says deny yourself, he's saying what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from what? Selfishness. A Christian is characterized by being selfless and not being selfish. Look for a minute over at chapter 9, verse 43. We'll get here. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having two of your hands and going to hell into the unquenchable fire verse 45 if your foot causes you to stumble cut it off it's better for you to enter into life lame than to have your two feet verse 47 if your eye causes you to stumble throw it out it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and to be cast into hell what's he saying here he's saying that there's nothing involved in our selfishness that's worth the forfeiture of eternity we see hands we see feet we see eyes all your own body parts jesus is saying when we commit to follow him he has claimed listen over our whole beings and our whole existence We are merely chess pieces that he moves at his own prerogative. We cannot be complacent, we cannot be flippant, we cannot be indifferent about our sin. Why? As we'll see in a moment, salvation is at stake in whether or not we deny ourselves. Can we just pause and say, it's not if we're selfish, but how selfish we are. It's not just if we're selfish, but what selfishness we see and what others may help us to see. We deny self, that's what it means. Secondly, cross bearing. He says, take up your cross. Now there's a real sense in which Christianity has sanitized and sentimentalized the cross and what crucifixion is. I grew up hearing Singing the old hymn, the old rugged cross, I still love that hymn. It's, it's a wonderful hymn. The theology is, is excellent in, them, in that hymn. But I remember those, the tune of that just maybe, just kind of want to hold hands with the people next to me and sway and say what a sweet thing the old rugged cross is. As wonderful as that song is, there's something deeper. In high school, I remember buying a cross necklace that I wore, that I loved it when it flopped around and tracked me, and thought that'll attract attention to Jesus. I'm not sure what my evangelistic strategy was there. Neither of those expressions are wrong. In fact, they honor Christ's sacrifice at some level. However, the first people here to hear of the cross in reference to Christianity would have felt horrified, grotesquely sick, and nauseated in their stomach. Traumatized, paralyzed with fear and dread. Now think about this. Jesus just told Peter he's going to go down to Jerusalem, be wrongly accused and ultimately be killed. Killed. He didn't say, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. When you put the four gospels together, we have no indication That this was the point where he told them anything about a cross. Just that he was going to die. Now that's important. We look back at this and we think of Jesus' crucifixion. We're going to be crucified like Christ. We look at Galatians. We look at Philippians. We import that theology. That's not what they were thinking. Joel Green writes this. The Romans chose to use crucifixion as a criminal deterrent because executed publicly, situated at a major crossroad or a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule, end quote. So when Jesus talks about a cross... They weren't thinking of substitutionary atonement outside the Antonio Fortress in Jerusalem. When Jesus says cross, they thought about the people they had walked by who were crucified, hanging naked. Sometimes for days, remember, they would uh, if the Romans were there uh, uh, in Jerusalem, they would, if it's the night of the Sabbath, that's why they would, they broke the, the legs of the other criminals so it wouldn't go over in the Sabbath. Jesus was already dead. But the typical practice of crucifixion was to nail someone to a cross on a major crossroads and walk away and let nature take its course. There's accounts of birds coming and plucking out eyes. There's accounts of, of wild dogs coming up and, and eating the person's legs alive. So when Jesus speaks of the Roman practice of death, It is sadistic torture that is in the minds of the disciples. Listen, put yourself in their sandals for a moment. This is the first time they've heard, take up your cross. Think of where their mind went. Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca Wrote about the cross this way. He said, Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting his life out drop by drop rather than being killed or expiring all at once? A quick death? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chest and shoulders and draw the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? He finishes by saying, I think anyone would rather have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross, end quote. But this is, this is unusual. Notice that Jesus does not see the cross as a way of dying. Jesus sees the cross here in the disciples life as a way of living. Take up your cross. He doesn't say go die. There's another passage for that. He says, take up your cross. Luke says, take it up daily. Death by crucifixion represented enduring the ultimate hardships, experiencing horrific humiliation, hatred, emotional and physical pain, and suffering. And that's what he's attaching to the life of a disciple. Listen, a little footnote, and I don't want to be trite here. We have to to clean up our language about the cross. I've heard so many people talk about, well, this is my cross to bear. My financial situation, my bad boss, a lack of talent, my physical ailments, even your mother in law. This is my cross to bear. If you're a mother in law, I'm not talking about you. That's not your cross to bear. The cross to bear here is the willingness to experience humiliation and shame and degradation and possibly even death because of your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross Thirdly, he says, and follow me. Loyal following, that's letter C, loyal following. Following Jesus was the first call our Lord gave to two sets of brothers in Mark 1, remember that. But here Jesus means more than traveling around with him. Following him meant to obey him, to be loyal to what he taught, to be loyal to who he was, to be loyal to his gospel. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus' voice speaks into the disciples' life as the unique authoritative master and Lord The most penetrating verse on assurance to me is 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. John says, By this we know that we have come to know him. Now, whatever comes next, pretty important. He's about to define what it means to know Christ. By this we have come to know him. If, our conditional word again, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, and does not keep his commandments. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. There's a false convert again. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected by this. We know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Can I be a little bit autobiographical with you for a moment? I grew up in the church. I grew up going to youth camp and member of FCA and member of Campus Crusade and, and uh, it, it, a Christian club at school. But my life didn't reflect following the Lord. When I was 16, I was working as a lifeguard in an indoor pool at a YMCA, listening to a preacher, and I was too lazy to go change the station. I thought, I'm going to finish cleaning this side of the pool and then I'm going to go change that to some rock or something. And the preacher was talking about this passage. And this was, I believe, the moment I was genuinely, truly converted. John chapter 8 verse 31, Jesus was saying, listen to this, listen to this. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, conditional clause, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So get the the scene here. These Jews had believed all the right things about Jesus But he says, if you follow my word, if you minnow, abide in my word, then you're real. You're not fake. I remember this preacher going on down into verse 44, talking to the same group of people who had believed in him. And this is what Jesus says. You, verse 44, are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. How can Jesus talk to people who have believed in him and tell them that their father is the devil simply because they had not abided in his word? Followed him. That's the same issue here. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes about the tragic account of, stick with me here, (laughs) the tragic account of, listen, an unsaved believer sounds like an oxymoron but it's not an unsaved believer someone who believes the right things about jesus but is unsaved because they haven't followed him james says what use is it my brethren if someone says he has faith he believes in jesus but it has no works he doesn't follow him can that faith save him no verse 17 faith if it has no works is dead being by itself verse 18 Some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then down to verse 26. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is not talking about working your way to heaven. This is talking about following Jesus, abiding in his word. And again, not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the point. How do you define what it means to follow Jesus? We say it over and over in this church. To follow Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus is a part of your life. To follow Jesus, to be a true disciple, means that Jesus is the point of your life that you're working every day to deny self, to endure the cross, and to follow what he said. That's the first deliberation about the cost of discipleship. Define it, cost defined. Now he begins with a series of subordinate clauses all with the word for. So let's look at them. Number two, the cost explained. The cost explained. Verse 35, for... Whoever wishes to save his life. The word life there is the same word for soul. Whoever wishes to save his soul, save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Following Jesus and being a true disciple, which is the same as saying a true Christian, Involves unreserved allegiance that holds nothing back from Christ, Christ's values, Christ's standards, and Christ's commands. Matthew said, of course, Jesus saying, rather, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The mind that does not gravitate often and desperately back to Jesus is a mind that should push back and ask do I really know the Lord this life this soul, this self, all the same word is what this person presumably wishes to save in his own material way without consideration of his immaterial soul, the invisible being that's Considered to last and live forever in the words of the Lord. This is a man who clings to a sinful life. Who wants Jesus and his sin. Jesus and her sin. Holding on tenaciously. Kind of like the rich fool in Luke 12. Who wanted his riches and to follow Christ. This is a piling up of material goods, a piling up of thinking only of self, a piling up of selfishness that never looks to others. And remember, wealth and joy and experience and happiness are not the enemy. Love of those things, instead of the love of Jesus is the enemy. William Hendrickson says this, this man imagines that material possessions or else pleasure, prestige, fame can bring him the inner peace and satisfaction he's really looking for. But this selfish narrowing of his horizon, I love that, this selfish narrowing of his horizon makes his soul narrower and narrower. He loses it. That is, he loses whatever remnant of the higher, nobler life was left in him at the beginning. Listen, friends, are you holding on to any sin that's distracting you from all out, total, unmitigated, unreserved commitment to Jesus? Is the Lordship of Christ something you think about sometimes or is he the Lord of your life? That's the question at hand. Don't miss the interpretation here. When he says lose it, he's speaking of eternal hell. That's the explanation. Third, the cost assessed. The cost assessed. Verse 36 For what does it profit for gain, privilege, a man to gain the whole world and forfeit? His soul. Another way of asking the same question we just looked at in verse 35. The question is simple. To do spiritual calculus and compute what is most worth eternity. It's a comparison. What's the eternal gain if you gain everything you want in this life, in this temporal world, but you forfeit heaven with God because this was your prize. It's all you sacrificed for. It's all you possessed. It's all you desired. I was just in Africa three weeks ago. I am so convicted by our friends in Africa, most of which, whom make about twenty dollars a month. They have nothing to look forward to except heaven. I think we're cursed because we can be distracted by so many things that make heaven just an afterthought. That make heaven, are you ready for this? Something we'd like to postpone. Not these friends. Are you holding on to any worldly value that is distracting you from total all out commitment to Jesus? Was a profit? If you gain everything, you forfeit your soul. Make that comparison. Jesus asks us to search our hearts for what is there and what we're really trying to gain. Think about your life. What do you really want? What are you really trying to get? Now, let's be careful here. We we studied the book of Ecclesiastes for a couple of years. It's certainly fine to work hard to enjoy the fruit of your labors, to enjoy things as as a gift from God. There's nothing wrong with that. But when those become the prize instead of, in place of God himself, we cease to love the blesser and we fall in love with the blessing. Jesus says, look at your heart. How do you define gain? Gain. My historical hero, Jonathan Edwards, says this. His seventh resolution of his seventy resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I've talked to many people over the course of my ministry who knew they were going to die in weeks, some in days. Some in hours, and I've held the hands of a few who knew they were going to die in moments and watched them slip into eternity. Edwards is saying if you knew you were going to die, how would that change your values, your decisions, your expenditures, your relationships, your conversations? Jesus is saying we live in a way that we don't know what's going to happen today and we always want to be ready for that moment. Resolution number 17. Edward says, Resolved, that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Living with the end, death in mind, is the key to living for Christ in the moment. It's all temporal. Jesus says, have you really evaluated the temporal and the eternal? Have you really stopped to think about how long this life and this world's offerings will last and how long is eternity? Number four, fourth deliberation about the cost of discipleship is the cost counted, the cost counted, He asks very specifically, he gets personal. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is graphic, this is detailed, this is pithy. He asks you personally, he asks the disciples, he asks me to be specific about your greatest value, your greatest values, and will you exchange your soul for that value? Something that's, something you want to experience Something you want to own. Boy, I think of Abraham in Genesis 22. God tested Abraham with what he loved most. And you know what Abraham did to pass the test? He was willing to sacrifice the thing, the son, Isaac, the one he loved. He was willing to sacrifice him For God. What might God use? Think about this. This is humbling. What might God use to test your affections for his son? Hebrews 12 says the one he loves, he disciplines. If he sees us reorienting our values, it is very likely he will strike those values. What would you give in exchange for your soul? I'm gonna beg you, do not put off consideration of this question. What is really most important to us? What is the idol of your heart? You say, what is that idol in the heart? It's something that you will sin to experience or to get, think about this, is something that you will sin in order to get or experience. Or, and, is something you will sin if you don't get it or if you don't experience it. You hear both sides of that? What is it that you would sin to experience or to get to own? The other side is what is it that you would sin if you don't get it? You don't get the approval of someone so you, you, you pout, you brag. You don't get the, the, the thing that you want so you, you sin with your finances. That's the idol of the heart that involves sin to get it and sin if you don't get it. Jesus says, do you know the idols of your heart? That's what you would give in exchange for your soul. Climaxes with the last subordinate phrase beginning with four in verse 38, the cost unpaid, the cost unpaid. For whoever is ashamed of me. Whoa, 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 stop right there, Jesus. So far, we've just heard of things you do, things you value. And now he actually gets at the heart of it and says, sometimes it will be possible. Sometimes it will be a temptation for you to stand in front of someone as a representative of me, and be ashamed of that. Oh, before you start running in panic, remember our friend Peter, who did that three times in one night, and a few weeks later, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Paul said, I am not Ashamed of the gospel. Why would he say that? Because it's possible to be ashamed. What does shame look like? You're embarrassed. You're fearful. You don't want to say what you think you should say, which is all back to our original point: selfishness and self-preservation, is it not? Whoever is ashamed of me, and then he adds this, and my words, that's the words of the gospel. In this adulterous and sinful generation. That's an interesting designation. Comes from Isaiah 57, Ezekiel 16, and Hosea 2, which talk about, this is an echo of the sinful and adulterous generation that these prophets were talking to. And he identifies that generation standing before him as the same. Whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, that's himself, will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. First of all, notice this. Jesus Christ is returning to this planet. He's coming again. He is coming again. And he's coming with holy angels. John says in 1 John, we need to live in such a way that we do not shrink back in shame when he's coming coming with the angels, the glory of his father, the fullness of his glory that they will experience in a week. Three of them will. Remember back in chapter seven, verse six, Jesus speaking about this generation says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's false converts. Here's the crux. These people assessed their spiritual well-being as excellent. Their status remained one of infidelity, however, to the covenant-keeping and great God. Please don't miss the return of Christ here. You shall not wear or carry the name of the Lord in vain. Word of caution. Ah, this, is, this has to be said. A word of caution. If you walk away here thinking, I have to do better, try harder, harder, and work more to receive and implement the gospel, you've missed the whole point. That's the cart in front of the horse. Works and obedience, and following come after our recognition and our love and our adoration of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. This is not works salvation. This is sanctification by obedience. That's what this is. Don't mistake Jesus as saying works will or can save you. He is not saying that. Neither will his, his apostles. Works Do not produce faith. Faith produces works. After he says this, look at verse 1 of chapter 9. He's coming in his holy glory, the glory of the Father. He is going to come in that. And if you were me, and I were you, and we were there, we would say... What does that look like? So he was saying to them in verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing right here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. When did that happen? Come next week. And I'll tell you. And if you want to know, just keep reading. Listen. Is your faith real? I have prayed so earnestly. I prayed this week. I prayed this morning. Oh, Father, please. If there are false disciples in our church that you would be swarmed by the hound of heaven convicting you, with the reality of your soul and that you would find repentance and a payment for your sin and conversion today. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? And they will not enter into heaven. God, let no one in this church be in that crowd. Would you pray with me?